So our first reading is from Zechariah chapter 9, which is on page 1360, um, starting from verse 9. Uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I must restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow, and I will fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrows will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. And then the second reading is from Matthew chapter 21 um, from verses 1 to 11. Uh, which is on page 1,405. Um, yep, so Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The, uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus has in had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went, that went ahead and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Thanks, Yiman. Please keep a Bible open at around Zechariah chapters 9 to 11. So I think that's about page 1306 or something like that. Uh, maybe even have Matthew 21 handy as well. How about we pray? Let's ask God for help. Father, we ask this evening that through your word, the written word, and the spoken word, we might see with much greater sight and clarity the living word, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I like art 
uh, but because bogan, I'm not always very good at appreciating what I'm looking at. So it's great when an artist turns up and tells you what's going on in a painting. Now, we've got an artist in our midst, in our church, a guy called Sid Topia. His studio is down in the Queen Street Arcade, so do yourself a favour and head down there and you can look at that painting. Uh, this painting is called Through You. It's of a man whose name is Sia. And you've got to say, it's a pretty well-captured moment. It's a great painting. I looked at it and I just thought, wow, I wish I could, wish I could paint like that. And in a sense, my appreciation kind of stops there. But you chat to Sid and he tells you the backstory of this painting, of how he was driving through Sydney one day and he sees this man, Sia, and he stops and he gets out and sits down and chats with him and asks if he can paint him and Sia agrees. And then the painting goes on to actually win the Leicester Portrait Prize. And so Sid is frantically trying to find this guy. Like imagine trying to find a homeless guy in Sydney. He finds him to talk about sharing the winnings with him because actually the painting wins the Leicester Portrait Prize. And it's not an insubstantial prize. Uh, Sid will tell you about how uh, Sia's family saw the painting. His family, who he has not seen for about 10 years, and they get in touch. They reach out to Sid. And he tells you about how this painting, in a sense, puts Sia and his family back in touch together. And when you look at it that way, you just kind of go, Wow. There is much, much more to the man in the picture. It's more than a painting. It's actually, it's priceless. And it's often the way, isn't it? We can, we can look at a painting or a person and just not appreciate what we're looking at. Sometimes we read the Gospels, moments like we've just read in chapter 21 of Matthew, a portrait of Jesus, a, a well-captured moment but a bit like me in an art gallery, we miss who Jesus is. The value and the worth of him. And we're not the first to do that. I think that's actually what's kind of going on in Matthew chapter 21. If you've got that in front of you, we need to think about what this would have been like for the people there that day. It's a regular event. It's not something that Jesus has just kind of concocted. Hundreds, thousands perhaps of pilgrims are there for Passover week. They're there already and Jesus is just one of them, one amongst many. And sure, the way Matthew records it, it has Jesus at the centre of the action as he borrows a donkey and a cold. But the cloaks on the ground, the palm branches, not unusual. The shouting aloud, the rejoicing in verses 9 and 10 there. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's I mean, it's lifted from Psalm 118, which is what they would be singing anyway for the Feast of Tabernacles or for the, for the Passover. It's a compelling picture, I think, because we know of what's coming and the way this week will go for Jesus, sure. But to the bystanders, the crowd, the people in the procession, even perhaps Jesus' disciples in the moment, they're not necessarily appreciating what's going on here, what's unfolding. And it makes sense of how that section of Matthew 21 ends. If you look at verse 10 again, the whole city's stirred, sure, because perhaps some people get something that is up. But notice they ask, who is this? And the best they've got is the prophet from Nazareth. Not a Messiah, 
just some guy from Redneckville. They don't appreciate him. They don't really see. They don't know what they're looking at. This is where Zechariah 9 to 11, if you flick back to there now, some 500 years before Jesus helps us immensely. Like an artist giving you the backstory on their painting. You know, what are you looking at in Matthew 21? Well, there is much, much more to the man in the picture. More than a man on a donkey in a crowd doing what they do at Passover. Zechariah is foreshadowing for you, or for his people as well, how the Lord himself, how God comes to Jerusalem to be the king of his people. To be the shepherd of his flock. I think the big idea of Zechariah 9 to 11 is captured pretty much by Zechariah 9 verse 9. And in these chapters, Zechariah, if you like, is sketching out Jesus' final week. The things that the Lord will do, so that say in the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is your shepherd. What's the backstory? How does the Lord become shepherd of his, of his sheep? Well, firstly, by bringing judgment. A judgment on the enemies of his people. And you see this mainly at the beginning of chapter 9. If you turn there now on page 1306, verses 1 to 8, so chapter 9, Zechariah mentions three of Israel's historic enemies, Syria, Tyre and Sidon, the Philistines. Uh, The oracle against Tyre, that's kind of what sets the tone in verse 3 there. If you have a look, Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She's heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea and she will be consumed by fire. These enemies are defeated, subdued. In the case of some of the Philistines in verse 7, they become like a tribe of Israel. You're seeing the conquest, really, started by Joshua of the Promised Land, come to its full completion. The Lord rides into Jerusalem. Well, that means the enemies that keep his people, his sheep, out of the Promised Land, they are dealt with, done. It also means, secondly, uh, judgment as, as the Lord rides into Jerusalem on the leaders of Israel, described by Zechariah as shepherds. In the ancient world, kings and leaders of nations were called shepherds, the idea being they're supposed to shepherd the sheep, care for their people. The problem is Israel's leaders were bad shepherds. They often fleeced the flock and ate the lambs. And Israel also has a track record of looking for shepherding, if you like, in in the wrong places. They've often turned to other gods, often encouraged by their kings, their shepherds, to do so. It's why I think if you turn now to chapter 10 of Zechariah, Zechariah calls Israel to ask the Lord for rain because that's what they've been looking to, those other gods, those false prophets as well, you know, bad shepherds in another way for. And the result of them doing that is that in verse 2 of Zechariah chapter 10, Israel are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord himself is going to come to take care of those shepherds and care for his flock. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. My anger burns against the shepherds and I'll punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah. The result is not only will God be the shepherd of his people, it seems like he's also going to give them other leaders. In verse 4, 
other sort of under-shepherds who'll bring renewal. And in a poetic way, the rest of chapter 10 of Zechariah sketches out what that looks like. Good leadership puts things right amongst God's people. That sounds great. Actually, if you knew that that's coming with the Lord, you'd welcome him with open arms, wouldn't you? But there's a twist in all of this. Uh, What else are you looking at when you look at Matthew 21? You're looking also at judgment coming to fall on the people of Israel and the sheep themselves. Zechariah shows you what will happen. It's how Israel will vote, if you like, when it comes to which kind of shepherd they want. So come to chapter 11 now. I know we're rocking through this, but hey... Verse 4, God tells Zechariah to act out a drama before the people in Jerusalem in his day. And it's an act of, it's a a drama about the relationship between God and his people. He's to play the part of God as shepherd. It's a bit of a sketch of their history. And history repeats itself and it ends in the end, if you like. So in verse 7, So, I, Zechariah says, I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favour and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds, and I wonder if it's some sort of dramatic acting out of stopping the office of prophet, priest, and king, or maybe three particularly bad shepherds. I don't know. Uh, His staffs are symbolic of God's favour towards Israel, his protection of them, and symbolic also of his power to unify his people. So you could say he is acting the part of the good shepherd. But notice how people respond in verse 8. The flock detested me and I grew weary of them. And I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favour and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. This covenant, this agreement to protect Israel is done. It's gone. It could be a picture of the exile. And it seems like the sheep get it. They try to offer him some severance pay. Uh, verse 12, what should you pay me? 30 pieces of silver. Tuck that amount in the back of your mind. That's the price, that's the value that the sheep put on the good shepherd. And it may not be a little amount, it might be significant. Exodus 21 talks about it as the price to redeem a slave. But whatever way you cut it, if he's acting out God being the shepherd... That is a deplorably bad price, isn't it? That's really cheap. Verse 13, this handsome price, it's bitter biting sarcasm. Because having the Lord as your shepherd is priceless. So Zechariah is told to throw the money back into the temple, uh, which is probably built by this time. Maybe into a place that is again going to become contemptible. And this kind of rejection means, well, judgment. Again, on Israel, the nation is finished. In verse 14, as he breaks the staff called union, what it means is that what's left of the flock, the sheep get the kind of shepherd they deserve. Zechariah is now told to play the role, not of a good shepherd, but of a foolish shepherd in verse 15. 
You think the good shepherd's worth very little? You get a worthless shepherd. You get the leaders that you often deserve. Leaders that destroy you. But look, there's one last piece of backstory to deal with. The Lord coming as shepherd, it means judgment, sure. There's lots of that in here. Judgment on your enemies, judgment on bad leaders, the end of Israel. Don't forget the top line, the verse that captures it all, right back at the start of chapter 9. Through all of this judgment and this rejection, there's this incredible, amazing salvation. Look at Zechariah 9 verse 9. Have a look. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a cult, the foal of a donkey. The people of Zion, God's people, should rejoice because a king like no other, a king who embodies God, his character, his power and the things that he does is coming to them. He is righteous, which means he's not crooked like the other shepherds. He's He's like God. He's victorious. And the Hebrew is kind of strange. It's passive. It's more like he comes having been saved. It's got the sense of him having been through the ringer and being then rescued. Like he's suffered and then been saved. He's lowly. He's gentle. He's not an oppressive tyrant. He's so gentle that his transport isn't a war horse but a donkey. Because whatever he's been through, it means peace. Peace for God's people. In verse 10, we're not going to need the weapons of war anymore. No chariots or battle bows. He will proclaim peace to the nations from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, everywhere. And it's a peace that's not necessarily the absence of conflict, absolutely. I think the word is shalom. It's harmony. It's wholeness. It's peace with others, uh, being at peace with yourself perhaps, certainly being at peace with God and he'll proclaim that. And so I guess the gist of this is in these chapters there's lots of judgment, there's a huge warning about what happens when you turn away from the Lord as your shepherd, there are tragic consequences for that for, for people. You wind up in a terrible state but he's the one you turn to for salvation and for peace. And you get the feeling from the rest of chapter 9, this peace and salvation is, is bigger, uh, more amazing than anything that Israel at this time, particularly in Zechariah's day, could get their head around. So look at verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. Verse 15, the Lord Almighty will be their shield. His people will overcome with piffling little weapons like slingshots. Uh, The victory celebrations that this is describing are clearly not sanctioned by Presbyterians. I mean, it's just off the chain, isn't it? You get it? It's bigger than they can can get their head around. When the Lord is your shepherd, God is your champion. It's, It's saying there are battles, there are struggles still ahead of you, but God will fight for you. And verse 16, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. When the Lord comes to be shepherd, there is a place in the flock for you. 
and you will sparkle like crown jewels. Renewed, restored. I mean, it's an idyllic picture because it's mind-blowing. Imagine being forever young. I'm appealing to the people over 40 here. Like, this is it. It's new creation, like it's being glorified. That's what he brings. And so a few hundred years later, with a few hundred other Jews, Jesus gets a donkey. And very deliberately is saying, I am the Lord who has come as your shepherd with all of this, your enemies that have kept you out of the promised land in a bigger way. They're done. The bad shepherds, no more. And he's saying, judgment, yes, that's coming on Israel, that rejection certainly does come because in a week after he rides into Jerusalem, the sheep detest the shepherd. In a week, Judas and the bad shepherd say Jesus is worth 30 pieces of silver, the ransom price for a slave, and we know, don't we, that it costs much, much more than that to ransom slaves. It costs the blood of Jesus. And that blood is vindicated and he is made victorious by God for us and that salvation and peace a place in the flock is yours. This is what you're looking at, says Zechariah in Matthew 21. And his backstory, doesn't it? It just brings richness and depth and power to that picture. And that's the thing about the Old Testament and why you need to understand it and how it points to Jesus because it means you can never look at him and say, oh, he's just an ordinary Jewish bloke with interesting taste in transport. He is much, much more than we give him credit for, isn't he? And so our appreciation of him and our thankfulness for him and our love for him should grow bigger and bigger when you read Zechariah because as he sits on that donkey, he knows what's coming. He rides into Jerusalem so you have a place in the flock. He is prized at a pittance so that you are precious, shining like jewels in the land. When you've had the backstory given to you and you see the value of the painting, you just cannot treat it carelessly and thoughtlessly, can you? Now, that painting of Sid's, if we ever heard that he was going to sell it for five bucks, we'd want to get him around the shoulders and shake him and say, what are you doing, dude? It's horrifying to treat it so cheaply. That's what Israel did with Jesus. And sadly, sometimes sheep who say he's their shepherd do it too. Don Carson kicks off a little book called Basics for Believers like this. I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I'd like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I'd like about $3 worth of gospel, please. That's putting a price on Jesus, isn't it? I mean, we never say it out loud or that crassly, and that is, well, that's crass, but our obedience says something about the value we put on Jesus, picking and choosing his commandments, turning a blind eye to the ones that we think, that's a bit hard, obeying what's convenient. Maybe we do it mucking around the edge of church, 
treating it like a consumer product. I mean, what, Jesus is worth one Sunday in a month. Uh, if I've got any time or money left, I'll, I'll give it then. I mean, it's been super encouraging, don't get me wrong. You're the people who are sitting here and maybe this is not for you. But super encouraging this morning to have people showing publicly that Jesus is precious as they became members, as Ethan got baptised this morning, saying, yeah, there are sacrifices, there is a cost to follow Jesus, but he is so, so valuable. What is it, in effect, that makes Jesus only worth $3 sometimes while something else gets your first and your best? I, I don't know, what is it? Is it the career, the uni course? Uh, the approval of people that you consider to be important. When I see people doing that with Jesus, I kind of want to shake them around the shoulders and say, what are you doing? And at the same time, I'd hope someone would do that to me because I've just got the same proclivity to put a price on Jesus, which is far, far too low. Folks, we need Zechariah, we need him to show us just how amazing and incredible, how much more is the man in the picture, the man on the donkey riding into Jerusalem, he's worth way more than 30 pieces of silver or $3. He's worth everything. And so we should rejoice greatly and shout aloud because our King has come, the Lord is your shepherd. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks for your word that gives us life and saves us. We thank you that it gave people in Zechariah's day, sheep without a shepherd, a hope that you would come righteous with salvation, gentle and proclaiming peace. And we thank you that you came doing that even if it meant rejection and being priced cheaply. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your rejection means our salvation. So please help us to prize and value and cherish you as we ought. Amen.